If you will tonight, turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22. We're going to look, as I said, at verses 17 to 21 as a prologue for this entire subsection of material. And because of that, we'll only be able to cover five wisdom sayings, five of 30 in this major subsection. We'll only be able to look at five of them tonight, and I trust that we'll be able to see them in their clarity and we'll be convicted by them. The five wisdom sayings stretch from verses 22 to 29, which end this chapter, and they are wisdom sayings regarding, first of all, the idea of the poor in verses 22 and 23. Secondly, wisdom regarding the angry in verses 24 and 25. Thirdly, wisdom regarding the lender, verses 26 and 27. Fourthly, wisdom regarding the thief, verse 28. And then finally, for tonight, wisdom regarding the worker or the craftsman, in verse 29. And those are five, as I said, of approximately 30 sayings in this section of chapters 22, 23, and half of chapter 24, which we're going to cover with verses 17 to 21, serving, as I said, as a prologue. And so I really want for us to dig in to verses 17 to 21 tonight, and then these five sayings, really as an introduction to this section. So if you will, look at verses 17 to 21 in your Bibles in chapter 22 for this preamble. It says, this is where I borrow the title for tonight's message, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, and apply your mind to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, that they may be ready on your lips, so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have taught you today, even you. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge to make you know the certainty of the words of truth that you may correctly answer Him who sent you? This is that prologue, this is an introduction for the whole of this major subsection, and of course it certainly proves to be an introduction for the first five of these wisdom sayings. And if you notice in verses 17 to 21, Solomon gives us, here as the author and maybe even as the editor of wise sayings that he's gleaned possibly even from others over the years, two imperatives two of them. Do you see them? Verse 17, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, plural there, wise men, and apply your mind to my knowledge. Two imperatives, two commands that Solomon wants to tell his sons or his pupils or students, anyone who is inclined to hear Solomon says in two ways, by way of command, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise men and apply your mind to my knowledge. 
And then he gives three reasons. Three reasons why this should be done. In verse 18 he says, For it will be pleasant if you keep them, that is these wise sayings within you, that they may be ready on your lips. Secondly, so that your trust may be in the Lord. And thirdly, verse 21, to make you know the certainty of the words of truth that you may correctly answer Him who sent you. So, two imperatives and three reasons for it. It's really great to be able to study these Proverbs and to be able to know, just like in the 21st century for us, that God's wisdom is available for us just like it was for Solomon and his sons of old. Look at verse 17. He says, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise men and apply your mind to my knowledge. As I said, those are commands... Those are not optional. That's really what God is commanding all of us to do. Incline our ears to the wisdom of God, to the words of God, to the wise sayings of God as mediated through Solomon and others in this great book, our Bibles, in order that we might apply this wisdom to our minds so that we might have the knowledge on how to live life. That's what He commands us to do here. And of course, He gives us the reason. Verse 18, For it, this wisdom, this knowledge, will be pleasant if, if you keep them within you. Keeping them literally in the belly, in the stomach, so that they may be ready on your Lips. You know, Proverbs 22:18 may be one of the greatest verses in all the Bible to justify Bible memory. Memorizing your Bible so that you may be ready with the Word of God on your lips. Notice the progression. It goes from your ear into you or into your stomach or your belly, which is the idea of being in your innermost soul, so that it can come right back up out of your mouth, to be on your lips, to be ever ready. Isn't that sort of what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3.15, that you're always ready, always with the ability to make a defense For the what? For the hope that is in you. Well, Solomon's saying the same thing to his son. For the hope, the hope of a wise life. For the hope of righteousness. For the hope of what God wants you to do in this Christian life, we call it. So that at a moment's notice, the inclining of your ears to the words of the wise men, applying the knowledge that you have in your mind so that it will be pleasant, beautiful. This is really a wonderful, as I said, affirmation of knowing the Word of God in your heart so that at a moment's notice, ever ready within you is the opportunity to know the Word of God so that you might be able to use it and to speak it. And then, 
almost as though in the center line of verses 17 to 21, he gives the fulcrum verse. So that your trust may be in the Lord. Reminds me a lot of Proverbs 3, 5, doesn't it? Don't trust in yourself, but trust in the Lord. Give up trusting yourself, but trust in the Lord, so that your trust may be in the Lord. And Solomon adds then at the end of verse 19, I have taught you today, even you. That's the emphasis. I've taught you, even you, sons, pupils, even you personally, he's saying, so that your trust may be in the Lord. Not in yourself, forsaking trust, forsaking all other efforts outside of God. And then he says in verse 20, Have I not written to you, and then it says in the New American Standard Bible, excellent things, amended by many, and I think the NIV has it, 30 sayings instead of excellent things. I don't know if that's the best translation. It's actually amended from the original Hebrew text. It could be what Solomon is referring to. Instead of excellent things, the word itself may be something that refers to the number 30. And it may be that Solomon is referring, and this is why you might have this in your Bible as a as a subtitle, or you may have it in the NIV text if you're using that, 30 sayings, and I don't want you to be misinformed about this. Somebody might read excellent things here, and somebody else has in their Bible 30 sayings, and someone's saying, what gives? What is this? Well, it's the difference between two Hebrew words, one that we assume was there originally, and then one that was amended by someone believing that there was a corruption in the text. And that it really should have been 30 sayings all along. And maybe there's a sense in which this 30 sayings is here because the person is seeing from verse 22 through chapter 24, verse 22, 30 Proverbs. And so because this is the introduction, this is the prologue, Solomon is saying, Have I not written to you, that is in the following, 30 Proverbs, 30 sayings, 30 pieces of wisdom, of counsels and knowledge, he says in verse 20. And then that reason, to make you know, verse 21, the certainty of the words of truth. I love that. The certainty of the words of truth. That you may correctly answer Him who sent you. And you say, well, who it is, that is sending me. Who is this that's sending someone? Well, could be a parent. Could be a commissioner of another sort. Could be a teacher, a lecturer. Uh, could be a governor or a king or a ruler. I guess in one sense it really doesn't matter whether it's your parent or your boss or your pastor, or anyone, if you are sent on a mission, a a journey, then you have to know how to navigate that journey. And if the journey is called life, 
You have to be able to know how to navigate that life. And so whoever the commissioner is, it really makes no difference. You and I are on a journey, and if we're commissioned on this journey, we have to have the right knowledge, the right understanding. And really what he's saying is, I'm giving you for the journey the wisdom sayings, the 30 sayings that you must know so that you may correctly answer him who sent you. And of course we know ultimately in an overarching sense, it's God. God is sending us on this journey and He's attempting to equip us for the journey with the wisdom of the Word of God. He's giving us what we need to know to answer Him correctly. We're one day going to give an account to Him and He wants to know if we have what it takes to be able to answer correctly this thing we call life. And specifically, the Christian life. And so, verses 17 to 21, is that, uh, that speech that your dad gives you before you leave house to go to college. Or maybe it's that lecture that you receive when your parents assume you're all ready to go and they get, give you that gentle nudge out the door and they say, I've told you everything I know. Now go out and live life to the glory of God. That's in essence what verses 17 to 21 is saying. In fact, this commissioning is listed in chapter 25 as well. Look at it. Proverbs 25 verse 13. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. For he refreshes the soul of his masters. Boy, that's, that's the kind of response that your commissioners, your senders want to hear from you. They nudge you out the door. You've got the message. You understand it. And you respond and it's refreshing to those who send you. And if, in fact, you know the certainty of truth, you're going to get it. You're going to understand. And God will be pleased with you. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing, as I said when we ended last time, to know these Proverbs so well that in every circumstance of life, we would be able to know exactly what to say or exactly what to do when given any or all circumstances. What a great thing to be able to be that ready, to be able to be that prepared. You say, well, what will be some of those circumstances? Well, Solomon in this section has 30 scenarios that he wants to tell us about. And the first five we'll cover tonight. And the first one is this, wisdom regarding the poor. Look at verse 22. Do not rob the poor because he is poor. Or crush the afflicted at the gate. Verse 23. For the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. Great wisdom. Profound wisdom. And unless the prologue, the introduction itself is the first saying, and this is the second And we'll assume that this is really the first. This is a great way to begin. And isn't it interesting that the first place that Solomon wants to begin in this section is with a word of wisdom toward the poor. Now we don't 
always connect with this, certainly not first base of first importance in our own society, but in that society there were a multitude of the poor. And you're, you were always going to be coming into contact with them. Every major city had them. Everyone who was traversing here and there would have come into contact with somebody who was very, very poor. And notice the wisdom. Don't rob them because he is poor. In other words, Solomon's telling his pupils, his sons, his learners, don't rob the poor just because they're poor. In other words, don't take advantage of them. Don't take advantage of them. It's easy to do that because they're poor, they're indigent, they're in need. And don't take advantage of someone simply because there is an opportunity to do so. Or, he says, crush the afflicted at the gate. The gate, of course, was the place in the city where a lot of the business transactions were taking place. And the sense that Solomon is describing here is that if you're at the gate, if you're at the main place where business transactions are taking place, don't crush the afflicted. Just because you have a shrewd business opportunity, don't take advantage of somebody who's down financially. In fact, this is actually the way that the previous major section ended. Look at verse 16 of chapter 22. He who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Rather, verse 9 should be our wisdom. He who is generous will be blessed for he gives some of his food to the poor. That's the wisdom we need. That's the right kind of knowledge. And then Solomon gives the reason, the reason you shouldn't rob or crush the poor and the afflicted in verse 23. For the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. This is so interesting. It's almost as though God, Yahweh God, Israel's God, is the defense attorney. And it's like a courtroom scene. And the defense attorney is arguing on behalf of the poor or the afflicted. And he argues so well that the judge, who is also Yahweh, turns around and grants the verdict for the poor or for the afflicted. And he also then pronounces the judgment upon the person who has done such a thing. And what is that judgment? He will take the life of those who rob them. You take their life, emblematic in the idea of taking the poor and pushing them down even further, taking what little money they have from them, or that sense of crashing, crashing down upon the afflicted. That's a very, very strong word. It's used of a sense of hitting, destroying Somebody who cannot fend for themselves. And the courtroom scene is that God is both defense attorney because they have no one else. is also the judge. And he renders the verdict and he says, you take their life, your life will be taken. You crush them, you'll be crushed. This is great wisdom 
regarding the poor. And right out of the chute, Solomon says in this section, son, pupil, learner, I'm telling you, do not rob the poor. Do not crush the afflicted. If you do, worse things will occur in your life. Second wisdom saying, it's regarding the angry. Look at verses 24 and 25. Do not associate with a man given to anger. Or go with a hot-tempered man. Or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. The second wisdom saying has to do with a son or a pupil or a learner and who he chooses to associate with. And in this case, we're warned against associating with, fellowshipping with, hanging out with a man given to anger. In a word, hothead. Hothead. Someone who is given to fits of rage. Or as Solomon says in the next line, don't associate with a hot-tempered man. It gets bothered under the collar quite easily. What happens? Why? Why would this be a problem? Well, he tells us, or you will learn his ways and find what? A snare. A snare for yourself. That's why the whole of these Proverbs starts out this way. Proverbs 1.10 My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse, which is a lie, by the way, right? It'll never just be one purse. No one's ever going to divvy it up as a robber, giving everybody all equal shares. That's a lie. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. They'll gain by violence. And here he adds, they'll be angry. Don't associate with them. By the way, to associate with means to have an intimate relationship, to have a friendship with. Don't have a friendship. It doesn't mean, of course, that you'll never be around an angry person. We're around angry people all the time. The question is, how much time, how much effort do we spend being around them? The sense of this passage is, don't linger long. Look at chapter 13. Proverbs 13, verse 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to, to turn aside from the snares of death. And you know what one of those snares of death is? Associating with a hot-tempered man. That's a sure snare. And that's what he says here. You're going to find a snare for yourself. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Bad company corrupts good morals. 
Don't think that you can throw in your lot and have a relationship with an angry, hot-tempered person and expect not to get burned. Don't presume that you can influence them to the degree that their anger just simply fades away and they see things in your way. It's not going to happen. And apart from the grace of God, we ourselves would be angry and violent and all of these things that we're told of persons to stay away from. This is great wisdom here. There's a third one. Wisdom regarding not only the poor and wisdom not only regarding the angry, but thirdly, wisdom regarding the lender. Look at verses 26 and 27. Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? You see, time and time again, Solomon warns his readers that guaranteeing for someone that you will make good on their loan to another is a bad idea. It's a bad idea. Don't guarantee anyone that you will pay a person's bill if they default upon a loan. I mean, it is strewn throughout these Proverbs and even the historical literature, the law books of Israel. It's what making a pledge means here. In the ancient world, literally it meant slapping the hand. Not just a handshake, not just a verbal agreement, but the idea of a firm commitment. He says, don't be among those who make a firm commitment, who slap the palms Together, among those who become guarantors for debts. This is something that I know for sure that there are people who often get themselves in very, very sticky wickets because they co-sign, they say, I'm going to be making good on so-and-so, and if they don't pay you, I will. Well, how do we know that? How can we make that promise? I just talked with someone in our fellowship this morning who said there might be a very good possibility of their being laid off from their job and it's come to them as a shock. Well, if that person had made uh, a promise to pay for someone else's loan and that loan defaults, how can that person promise anything? We can't promise these things and that's what Solomon is teaching us to avoid. Notice how he says in verse 27, if you have nothing with which to pay, which is nothing we can control, we may have money today and not have it tomorrow. And then he says, interestingly, why should he take your bed from under you? What does that mean? Well, if you don't have the ability to pay, they're going to take your jacket, your garment, You see, in those ancient days, they didn't have the kinds of beds that we often enjoy today. Your garment, your coat, your your outer clothing in the cool of the night often was your bedding. 
That's what you use to bed down at the night. So many times you'll see in the Old Testament as you read through it, someone who goes into the town square and because they didn't have hotels, uh, they might not have known anybody in the city, they just stayed out in the open air and you used your coat. Even in one instance, as I read in the Old Testament, someone used a rock as their pillow, right? This is what he's saying. If you can't have the ability to pay for someone else's defaulting on their loan, guess what is going to happen? If you don't have any money, they're going to take your garment, your jacket, which happens to be your bed. Why should he take your bed from under you? Look at chapter 20, verse 16. That's the sense of this. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger. Taking his garment, taking his, his bedding, the place or the material with which he sleeps. Chapter 27, verse 13. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger. Oh, as I said, over and over again, warning us. Solomon warning his, his students, namely his sons, don't pledge things like this. Chapter 6, verse 1, probably the most extensive teaching about this in the Proverbs. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. My son, if you've become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you've been snared with the words of your mouth, which means, yes, I'll do it, I'll commit to it, I pledge, and yet you've been caught with the words of your mouth, in other words, you don't have the ability to follow through on what you've said, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself since you've come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, humble yourself and importune, which means beg. Beg your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. In other words, do everything you can to get out of that. Do it as quickly as you can. Why? Because even in that day... You didn't have the ability to pay back and pay back quickly. You were in their mercy. They could do anything to you. Look at chapter 11, verse 15. He who is guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it. But he who hates being a guarantor is secure. Chapter 17. Verse 18, as I said, littered throughout these Proverbs, a man lacking in sense pledges and becomes guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. Proverbs have a lot to say about money and a lot to say about how to use it. And if you use it in such a way that you are guaranteeing the payment of another when you don't know, even as it says, a stranger, whether or not that person can be trusted to pay back their own loan, don't do it. Very, very wise. Number four, wisdom regarding the thief. Verse 28, do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Land was a very valued commodity in that time, and of course, it is in our day as well. By the way, 
You know who the largest landowner, just in terms of the sheer owning of the largest geographic of land in the world? The Roman Catholic Church. Land is very, very valuable. And in that time in ancient Israel, land was a precious commodity. In fact, it was even said to be holy, wasn't it? Because God had given it to His people. And when He'd given it to His people, He expected them to be righteous in their regarding it. And so, of course, when the plans were set up, and when families were set up, and when land was plotted out and it was given uh, to those families of the clans, those families would take those very, very meticulous measurements and they would set up boundary markers, landmarks we might call them. And often in those landmarks, this stone would have inscribed upon it very, very clear lines of demarcation as to what was theirs and what was not theirs. And throughout the Proverbs and in other places, there was strong condemnation, strong condemnation by God Himself, especially toward the widows and toward the poor in not moving their boundary markers so that their land was shriveling up, decreasing in size. And often that's exactly what happened. Someone in a very shrewd and devious way, probably in the middle of the night, would go and they would move very incrementally these boundary markers. Maybe only, for instance, a half an inch a year or some such thing like that. And pretty soon someone would begin to realize, wait a minute, somebody's land is increasing and my land is decreasing. And this was a way for people to claim, no, that's your boundary marker, that's your landmark, that's how much land you have, and that's how much land I have. And Solomon's reference here to the fathers, it would be in your ancestors the opportunity to honor them. They set the boundary markers. They would be very grieved to know that their ancestry would be changing things. This is really nothing other than thievery. This is somebody who is devious, in fact, Job spoke of this. Job 24.2 says, Some remove the landmarks. They seize and devour flocks. This was very, very important. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, I mentioned the law book of Israel. In chapter 27, verse 17, it says this, Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Leave it there. Honor your fathers. Honor the ancestry. Leave these boundary markers where they lie. Because if you move them to your advantage, it's nothing but thievery. You're dishonoring those around you. And in fact, if that land was parceled out among the clan and different families of the same clan were having those land masses plotted very close to each other, you were doing thievery against your own kin, your own relatives. In Proverbs chapter 15, notice what the Bible says. Proverbs 15:25. The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but He will establish the boundary of the widow. That's what it's referring to. Chapter 23, 
Verses 10 and 11. Do not move the ancient boundary or go into the fields of the fatherless. For their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their case against you. That sounds a lot like the other proverb that we discussed earlier. God knows what's going on. He sees what's happening. And if you expand the boundaries against the widows, against the the fatherless, God's going to plead their case against you. Strong denunciations. Even Hosea gets in the act. Hosea chapter 5 verse 10. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. God through Hosea says, On them I will pour out my wrath like water. God has some serious, solemn things to say to those who are thieves. And then lastly for tonight, wisdom regarding the worker or the craftsman. Look at Proverbs twenty-two, twenty-nine. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. I think this is a, this is a great place to end tonight. This is talking about wisdom as it is manifested in the skill of your work. This is an amazing concept. Did you know that there are lists, we'll look at a few of them, where God actually puts craftsmanship, the idea of becoming good at a skill in a work environment alongside wisdom and knowledge as though they're inextricably linked. It's very, very interesting. Look in your Bibles at Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31. This is amazing. You may have read this as you've read through your Bibles and seen this amazing set of passages. In Exodus chapter 31, notice verses 1 to 5. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Notice this, verse 3, interestingly. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in what? In wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. You say, boy, that seems out of place there. Craftsmanship in addition to this wisdom and understanding and knowledge? Yes. Why? Verse 4. To make artistic designs for work in gold, in silver, and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, and in the carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. Isn't that interesting? There is a sense of wisdom even in craftsmanship. The skill of doing a good work, of being pleased and pleasing God, even in religious ceremonies and in religious worship. The idea of carving and the idea of skill in all of these ways, using metals for the sake of the glory of God, being good at what you do, being skilled at what you do. Look at chapter 35, verse 30. Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name 
Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and in knowledge and in all craftsmanship to make designs for working in gold and in silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood so as to perform in every inventive work, creative work, He has also put in his heart to teach both he and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to perform every work of an engraver and of a designer and of an embroiderer in blue and in purple and in scarlet material and in fine linen and of a weaver as performers of every work and makers of designs for the tabernacle. Yeah, there is wisdom in terms of knowledge, in terms of what to to do and what to stay away from. Yes, there is a premium on knowledge, the knowledge of the Word of God, to know how to navigate the right path of life. But there is also a skill that is every bit a part of wisdom from the Spirit of God to know how to design, to work. I praise God for all of that. I drive those things. I go into those kinds of buildings. I live in such a way that there is a great skill, especially with someone who loves Jesus Christ and is skilled in the matter of doing great work for God, even in their skilled craftsmanship. And that's what he's saying. And he says, do you see a man skilled in his work? He'll stand before kings. He won't stand before obscure men. Someone who's not skilled in his work, he'll stand before the obscure. Those who are wise in their craftsmanship, they depend on God, they depend on the Spirit of God, they look to God for their creativity, for their talents, and they trust God with the result. It's interesting, in Proverbs 8.30, you don't have to turn there, but it's talking about wisdom as though wisdom were personified in a person, and it says, I was His, that is God's, master workman. Creating the world. There's a mastery. There's a creativity that God delights in. And when God delights in that skilled craftsmanship by His Spirit, it takes a person right to the top to stand before kings. You know, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Christopher Parkening. All of the labor... All of the hours, every day of his life, for multi-hours a day, for multi-weeks and months and years of his life, and ultimately he would play that instrument before kings and presidents, skilled as, as a craftsman through the Spirit of God. I think of Joseph in Genesis 39 where it said, And the Lord was with Joseph, and what he did he made to prosper, whether he was in the pit or in the palace. This is, this is an amazing five sayings of wisdom for Solomon toward his pupils. What about yourself? What about the poor? What about those who are angry and your relationship to them? What about those regarding those principles regarding the lender? What about stealing, thievery? And what about skillful work? You know, all of those, all five of those and 25 more that will come to us through the next couple of chapters are all things that I'm totally convinced are absolutely impossible apart from the Spirit of God 
the providence of God, and the grace of God. None of those things are possible. In fact, we would be violators of every one of these things, not doing any of them to the glory of God if it's not for the grace of God. And we can't do that, the grace of God, in these works unless we have the grace of Jesus Christ. Absolutely impossible. We're going to be involved in gouging the poor. We're going to become friends with the angry. We're going to be making foolish decisions like lending to those unwisely who can't pay their own bills. We're going to be resorting to becoming thieves and will be forever and always standing before obscure men as unskilled workers if it's not for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And a thousand more things. This is absolutely imperative that we understand that whether it's from the book of Proverbs or anything we would be taught in the New Testament, it is only when we turn in repentance and faith to Jesus and Jesus alone and we say, Lord, forgive me for my arrogance and my pride. Forgive me or I am this person. I'm this person. If I don't have your grace and your mercy, Lord, I fall upon you in repentance and faith and I ask you to forgive me or I'm going to be turning into this very person if I'm not that very person right now. It's the grace of God through the mercy of Christ that makes us even one whit sensitive to the poor. It's the grace of God in Jesus Christ that makes us sensitive to not being an angry person and not associating with angry people. And it's the grace of Jesus Christ and alone His mercy that we are not doing with our money all kinds of foolishness. And it's the grace of God through the mercy of Jesus Christ that we are a person who doesn't cheat and steal and move things around to our advantage. And it's the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that we are persons who are skilled at doing anything at all for the glory of God. Why don't you bow your heads with me? And why don't you seriously contemplate where you are in relation to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Do you know Christ? Do you have that grace and mercy? You can't do any of these things, my friend, unless you're saturated by grace. Have you repented? Have you turned? Have you placed your confidence and faith in Christ? For He alone forgives. He alone sets us on a new path so that our sinful life is put away and we're able to live as Solomon commands us here. These are imperatives for us. Incline your ear to wisdom. Apply your mind 
to God's knowledge. Don't you want it to be oh so pleasant to you? So beautiful? So that you're fearing the Lord? Trusting in Him only? Not in yourself? Abandoning all your self-effort? So that you may be carefully able to know the certainty of truth so that you're correctly answering the very Creator who made you and who sent you into this world and will one day ask what you did with how you were sent and with who you are. Oh, I pray, Heavenly Father, that no one would leave this place and misunderstand that this wisdom, this ability to walk in this way in life is completely impossible apart from the mercy of Jesus who has forgiven sinners like us and will forgive sinners like us if we trust Him, if we rely upon Him. Oh, I pray that we would, through Jesus' own death and through His resurrection, understand that He is wisdom personified. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. so that we might rely upon Him alone to give us the wisdom like Solomon teaches us here to live life in a way that honors Him and through Him glorifies You, Heavenly Father. May the Holy Spirit open eyes and create in us a new heart so that we might fulfill these things for your ultimate praise and our earthly good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.